I've heard a story that on one occasion, the Buddha was staying in Savati, in a place called Jetta's Grove. And this was a favorite resort, a favorite abiding of the Buddha. And he often spent the period called the Rains Retreat in this place, a period of three lunar months during the rainy season. They say it was as many as 25 times. He gave many discourses and teachings from this place. And nowadays, Savati is no longer there. There's a small village, Sahet Mahet it is called, and, and there are few who even recall the name of Savati. Some historians and scholars, pilgrims know the name, and followers of the Buddha who take an interest in such things. And there are still signs of that once great city. The old city walls can still be seen there. They stand and within those walls, there are some low brick and stone foundations of dwellings that were there. But these days that place is inhabited really only by a few monkeys and some stray dogs. And I know these things for I have been there. I once spent the rains retreat in meditation in that Jetta's Grove. I've seen the monkeys and I've seen the dogs. And I was a pilgrim there. And this is the way of things, such is the way of things, that which was once great, lessens and fades away and is no more. At the time of the Buddha, Savati was the capital of a kingdom called Kosala. And the king who ruled there was named Pasenadi. And he was a great friend and disciple of the Buddhas. This place was also the home of a very wealthy merchant named Anattapindaka. And over time he became probably the most famous lay disciple of the Buddha. And he purchased that place called Jetta's Grove the Jetavana, he purchased it from Prince Jetta and he built the monastery where the Buddha was staying in this story. Now in those days, at the time of the Buddha, in the month or two before the rains retreat would begin, those monks who were able would assemble and attend upon the Buddha. They would gather where he was residing in order to receive instructions directly from the master. And after that, they would return to uh, their dwelling places, their hermitages and their forest abodes and take up residence there for the rainy period, as was the custom and the rule at that time. And in this story, it's said that at one time, a group of 500 monks came to the Buddha. Now, the number 500 usually means a lot or many. (laughs) And they went to the Buddha and they waited upon him and they bowed to him out of respect and they sat down to one side. And they then received instructions and teachings in meditation and particular techniques that were considered and the Buddha saw were suitable for their individual temperaments and inclinations. And it's said that those uh, instructions followed these different kinds of categories. Those who were of a lustful 
temperament, we're given the contemplation of the 32 parts of the body. Those of a hating disposition were taught the fourfold meditation that begins with loving kindness, sometimes called the Brahma Vihara practices. Those of a deluded temperament who tended towards confusion were giving a meditation uh, of contemplation of mindfulness of death. Those inclined to speculative thinking were given mindfulness of breathing. Those of a faithful temperament were taught to contemplate and recollect the qualities of the enlightened ones. Those inclined to investigation were given the contemplation of the four great elements. And it's said that after each of the monks had received instructions and teachings that were suitable, then this group uh, departed and left to seek out a desirable place, a secluded place to spend the rainy retreat because they wished to abide uh, quietly in seclusion and intensive meditation. In the course of their wandering, they came to a, a beautiful hill. And the hill appeared to them as if it was made of a glittering blue quartz crystal, just at the base of the Himalayas was where it was located. And it was surrounded by a cool, dense green forest. Delightful sight for their eyes. Nearby, they found a stretch of open ground that was strewn with very fine sand. It looked like a silver sheet or perhaps a pearl net. Beautiful place. And there was a spring of clean, clear, cool water there. It seemed very ideal. They were captivated by the sight of this place. Nearby, there were some small villages and there was also a somewhat larger market town where they could go for their alms rounds, which was the practice, still is the practice, to walk through the village or the town and uh, receive offerings of food each day. And so they stayed at the night. They spent the night at the edge of the forest in that grove there. And the following morning, they walked into the market town to go for alms. And it's said that the residents were overjoyed to see them because rarely did such a group come to spend the rains in that part of the mountains. And so the people in the village fed the monks, offered them food, invited them to stay on there as their guests. And they even went so far as to offer that they would build each one a small hut for meditation at the edge of the forest on that beautiful stretch of ground. Provide them with that accommodation there so they could spend their nights and days in meditation under the the majestic trees of the forest there. So the monks agreed happily and the devotees built the little huts for them quickly. And they provided each one with a wooden cot and a stool and some buckets for bathing and uh, drinking and washing. And the monks settled down contentedly in the huts. And then each one selected a tree to meditate under. These beautiful old forest trees there and they each picked one. It was the custom to practice at the base of trees in forests at that time. Still is. It's a beautiful place to practice at the base of a tree. 
Now it just happened that these great trees were inhabited by a tree devas, a kind of nature spirit. And each of them had built a kind of uh, heavenly or celestial mansion using the trees as the base and foundation. And that was their custom. And it's said that these, these tree spirits, these devas, stood aside out of reverence and respect for the monks. And they took their families aside with them. Because from their uh, way of looking at things, it was not respectful to hover above the monks while they were meditating. So they went aside, they moved aside. And they didn't like to, to uh, be hovering above them as they were sitting in meditation. And they thought, well, the monks, they'll just stay for a day or two. It's okay. So they bore the inconvenience gladly. But then two days, three days, several days passed. And they started to feel dispossessed. They started to feel like villagers whose homes had been commandeered by um, an army of visiting royalty or something. And they kept watching anxiously from a distance, waiting to see when the monks would leave, when they would get their houses back. And so they discussed the situation among themselves, these dispossessed devas, And they decided that they had to do something. So they decided they would frighten the monks away by showing them terrifying visions and making dreadful noises and creating terrible stench in the forest. And so they materialized these terrifying conditions and they afflicted the monks in a systematic way. And it said that these, these monks grew pale and they could no longer concentrate. And the devas continued to harass them in this way and they soon lost even their basic mindfulness. And their minds became smothered by these oppressing visions and dreadful sounds and tragic smells. But the, they didn't mention it to each other, kind of kept it to themselves. Didn't want to seem like they were having problems there. But one day, as was their custom periodically, they all gathered to wait upon the elder of the group to visit him. And he spoke to them and he said, friends, when you first entered into this wood, you appeared healthy. Your features were bright and your faculties were clear, but now you are lean and pale. What does not suit you here? And one monk spoke and he said, venerable sir, at night I saw such dreadful objects, heard such horrible sounds and smelled such terrible smells and my mind was afflicted and I could not concentrate. And in the same way, each one of them recounted his experiences. And the elder spoke and said, let us go brethren to the blessed one, to the Buddha and place our problem before him. For I too have been afflicted in just the same way. There are two times for the rains retreat, the early and the late. And though we will be breaking the early one by leaving this place, we can always undertake the later one after we have meet, met with the Buddha. So they all agreed and they set out at once. They didn't even tell the townspeople that they were leaving. And traveling by stages, they re- went back to Savati. And they went to the Buddha and again, bowing respectfully, they sat down to one side. And the Buddha spoke to them and he said, monks, A training rule has been made known by me 
saying that no one is to go wandering about during the rains. Why are you wandering about? And the monks related their experiences and they asked the Buddha to help them find another place to go. And it said that the Buddha, with his great vision, surveyed the entire uh, continent of India. He checked it all out. He said, sorry, <laughs> but there's no better place for you. You've got to go back. There's no place where you can achieve final liberation that's better than this. And he said to them, monks, return to the same spot. It is only by striving there that you will realize destruction of the inter inner taints and uh, defilements. Fear not. If you want to be free from the harassment caused by these deities, learn this sutta. It will be a theme for meditation as well as a formula for your protection. And then the master, the awakened one, the Buddha, recited the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the discourse on kindness which is to be done. And the monks memorized this teaching in his presence there. And then they traveled back to the same grove that they had run away from. And it's said that they approached the forest grove reciting the words of the Metta Sutta and meditating on the underlying meaning of, those, of the words. And the hearts of the devas became charged with warm feelings of goodwill. Metta is said to be like food for the devas. And so they materialized in a human-like form and they received the monks and they took up their alms bowl and conducted them to their huts at the, at the edge of the woods and they, they magically caused water and food to materialize there. And then they resumed their normal form and they invited the monks to, to sit at the bases of the trees, to occupy those places, to dwell there in peace, to meditate without hesitation or fear, to stay for the entire rains period. And it's said that they looked after them gladly and carefully for the whole time. And they made the place free from any kind of disturbance, made it very peaceful. And it's said that dwelling peacefully there under the trees, uh, and under the care of these devas. They applied themselves, the monks applied themselves diligently with balanced effort. And at the end of the rains, each one had become a fully enlightened being as it goes in these stories. And it's said that such is the power intrinsic in this teaching of the Metta Sutta, that anyone, whoever with firm faith recites these verses, invoking the protection of the devas and meditating on kindness, safeguards and protects themselves, those around, those nearby, and will make uh, progress in meditation that can be seen and verified. These are the words of the Buddha from uh, another teaching in a collection called the Samyutta Nikaya. Therefore, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by loving kindness. Make it our vehicle, make it our basis. Stabilize it, steady and consolidate it. Exercise ourselves in it and fully perfect it 
Thus should you train yourselves. I like this image of making metta, making loving kindness our vehicle. Letting our kindness, awareness, our practice ride on this vehicle, the vehicle of kindness, of care. I recently uh, heard a friend define metta, loving kindness, friendliness, as kindness with awareness. That was a great a great way to think of this quality, kindness with awareness. I think it points to a really important aspect of this quality. And then I thought about it some more and I decided one could think of it as um, awareness within kindness and kindness within awareness, both of these ways. Because when we bring these two together, when we bring kindness together with awareness, the result is very potentially very powerful. The potential there becomes really strong. So this is the sutta that we've been chanting in the evenings. Many of you have been coming for that. The same Karaniya Metta Sutta. It's the same one, our translation, what we have these days of that discourse. It's probably one of the most uh, beloved teachings of the Buddha. It's been described uh, as a jewel sparkling softly but compellingly over the centuries. And I think of it as being jewel-like because it's, it's very relatively short, has this beautiful poetic quality. It's probably chanted more frequently than any other uh, discourse of the Buddha. Many people are probably chanting it right now somewhere across the world, bringing these, uh, this teaching to mind. But it's actually, there's a lot to this discourse. There's a lot in there. And, and it's worth taking a look at it. So I want to um, at least begin to go through the, this, this teaching. I think it's uh, really great sometimes to really take a look uh, directly at the words of the Buddha. And some of you, if you want to look at the sheet, there you can. But you don't have to. I'm going to say, I'll say the words. In fact, I'm going to chant the words. And some of you might know this chant in English. The way I do it is the way that they, they do it um, in the Thai forest tradition. And the Western brand, monasteries um, like Amaravati and, and the branch monasteries there. And some of you may have learned that. So... Um, if I start chanting and you know it, you can join me. In fact, even if you don't know it, you can join me. And I want to acknowledge that um, I, um, I had a, some ref, part of the reference that I used for some of the uh, things that I'm offering tonight came from a teacher named uh, Andrew Olensky, who teaches sometimes over at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies just down the road from us here. And he's done a very thorough um, um, set of uh, essays, writings on this uh, sutta that uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, some point you might have a look at it. It's quite, quite rich. 
So as I was saying, this teaching, um, the form of it is kind of like a poem. And those of you who've uh, been uh, chanting it in the Pali can get a sense for that, the feeling of it as being uh, kind of like a verse, like a verse. And it's, it kind of has three sections uh, that make it up. And there's some, there are some useful, useful reflections that we can find right in the first couple of lines. So I'm going to start this evening uh, with chanting just uh, the very first line. So this is in the, on the English side of the sheet for those of you who are looking. <clears throat> this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. And that's how uh, this teaching opens, that line. I think it's interesting that uh, in this, there's this relationship where goodness is uh, described as a skill one might develop the skill of goodness. I think we don't tend to look at it in that way very much of the time. And usually we think it's something we either have or don't have, or we have some of, and maybe someone else has more goodness and we have a little bit of goodness or something. We don't, we don't tend maybe to think of it as a skill, as something to be developed. And there's also this link in this sentence between uh, the skill of goodness and a path of peace. And there's an implication that the path itself is a peaceful path and that it's a path that leads to peace, leads perhaps to the greatest possible peace, the deepest kind of peace. And there's this uh, pointing to the fact that whether or not Peace is part of our experience in life. Is not so much just chance or the luck of the draw or something, but that it actually is um, related to skills that we might develop, things that we might cultivate, that we gain understanding through our own efforts, through our efforts in meditation, through bringing awareness to our life in all the ways we might do that. So then what might we think of in terms of, of the, a skill of goodness? You know, one simple way I think we can look at this is in terms of our conduct, how we live in the world, what's called sila in Pali. And, and in the first evening we address this with uh, the precepts that we, uh, in a, that we, um, undertake when we enter into the retreat like this, this intention to live harmoniously, to limit the harm that we do in the world by bringing care to our actions, living carefully. Michelle spoke so beautifully about uh, mindfulness as uh, care and carefulness. I think that's the 
I know when I first came to practice, that was that quality of carefulness was what touched me the most. I I loved the fact that I could live as carefully as I as one does on retreat. There's something about that that I just found so so great that I could live my life with that kind of care. Didn't seem like I would do that outside of retreat at the time. So living carefully and orienting our lives towards harmony, towards non-harming, and being realistic, of course, that we can't completely live without harming. It's not possible, but we, we look at the intention in the mind and we do our best to limit that, to live carefully. And there's a kind of goodness that's maybe obvious there. And the relationship to, to peace and to the way it might lead to peace uh, is fairly easy to see, I think. If we're living a careful life, a life where we're um, not harming to whatever to the extent that that's possible for us, it leads to a mind and heart that are free of the qualities of remorse and guilt. And that's a great support. It leads to more ease, calm, tranquility, ability for the mind to settle because it's not filled with worry and uh, remorse in this way. And it's an obvious support for meditation and it's said that our practice rests on on this foundation. Another skill of goodness that we might think of is the practice of generosity. Something that we can cultivate, develop. And it brings peacefulness to the mind and heart and it also is onward leading towards greater and deeper peace. It enhances the movement, supports the movement of the mind towards peace. One direct way we can see this is that it, the practice of giving, of generosity, functions as this very direct uh, counter to the forces of grasping and holding in the mind. We're practicing the skill of letting go when we practice generosity. And it relates very directly, Donna and Sila, to uh, one way that the Buddhist teachings are described as three trainings in Dana, Sila, and Bhavana, in generosity or giving, in ethical conduct, and bhavana means uh, mental uh, culture, or um, it's the meditation practices, mind development, that word, bhavana. And it's said that this is the the Buddha uh, taught in this way. He taught these in this threefold way, especially for uh, people like us who are not living um, the life as an ordained a monk or nun. We tend a lot in, in the West, I think, especially to kind of set the Don and Silas part aside and go straight for the bhavana part. Jump right into the meditation. We do a little bit, you know, we'll chant the precepts at the beginning of a retreat and, you know, we will acknowledge that giving is probably a good thing to do sometimes. And we don't really maybe see them as practices in the same way as we see the meditation. I think we don't tend to hold them that way. One cool thing about looking at the practice in this threefold way is, you know, sometimes the bhavana it just isn't happening. 
It just isn't, you know, it's like, wow, you know, it's just not going down. But we can practice down in sila when that's not happening. So it gives us a, a nice fallback because, I don't know, maybe I'm only talking about myself and, Mich- and Michelle. We may be the only two, but sometimes the bhavana just ain't going. <laughs> it's just not going anywhere. So we can fall back on Donna and Sila. But I think it's a mistake to see these, uh, to see the practices of giving, of generosity, of ethical conduct, um, as sort of, we tend to see them as preliminary practices a lot. It's kind of something we sort of get them in place and, and then we, we do the real thing. You know, we chant the precepts, okay, done. We put our sheet back out with the precepts, put it back out on the counter. <laughs> I think it's limiting, kind of a narrow way to look at, at those, at these things. Because I think that each, that in and of themselves, they have vast potential and they are liberation practices, just as much as the meditation might be seen that way. And I, th- I think, and I have seen for myself over quite a long time now, that um, my relationship to Donna and Sila is constantly being refined and, um, and it's woven into the fabric of the practice at every stage and step along the path. A few years ago, I was uh, teaching at a retreat in California with uh, some friends and colleagues, and I uh, was going to, I forget. Anyway, I wanted to speak on this subject, and I asked uh, one of my colleagues, uh, a teacher named Carol Wilson, some of you may know her, um, if I could interview her. And uh, she happened to be lying on the floor at the time. So this is, these are some words from the reclining posture. Donna and Sila are not in any way merely preliminary practices. They are a way of living one's life, of purifying the mind stream. The more I practice, the more I see the subtlety of the way they inform my life. They are intrinsic to awakening. If one were just to practice Donna and Sila with the intention to really watch the mind and heart, one would discover that they are in and of themselves liberation practices. I think it's a really beautiful way of holding these things. And so there's this implication there because uh, with there's this um, emphasis of the intention to really pay, look at the mind and heart, to really pay attention. There's this emphasis on, on really um, looking for ourselves we're looking to see what is of value. How do these things inform our life? So continuing in the sutta, the next few lines uh, continue to address this uh, idea, this, this sense of uh, the skill of goodness um, in terms of our conduct and different attitudes that uh, we could see qualities and attitudes of mind that we could see as reflecting goodness in different ways. And within this next section, there's also this pointing to um, 
the life of simplicity of renunciation that was followed by the Buddha and his disciples at that time and is still followed by uh, the nuns and monks in this tradition. So I'll chant uh, the next uh, section. And I heard a, a few little faint voices out there, but please join me if you know this chant or would like to. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I think there's something um, for all of us to consider. You know, there is the sense that this was uh, delivered to those who were living the renunciate life, living as alms mendicants, needing to uh, really cultivate uh, a simple way of life and this uh, being uh, satisfied easily. But this this uh, uh, emphasis or pointing to simplicity in our lives and a movement towards greater simplicity, this encouragement to um, really look how we're living in the world ties in with the quality of uh, ethical conduct of sila also there. You know, we can think about um, the way we use resources in our lives, in the world. You know, we're, we're a pretty voracious species. You know, and we, we want the best stuff for ourselves. And it's not a pointing a finger of blame in this. You know, it's natural in a way, but, but we don't leave a lot for other beings. And we're pretty wasteful in the way we, we use it all, at times at least. And we have these economic systems that are based on continual growth, as though that somehow is sustainable in the long run. How could it be? And we foul the air and the water and we turn the landscape into a desert. And you know, if squirrels or chickadees were doing that, we would rub them out. We wouldn't tolerate it. Terrible pest. But we, we remove ourselves from, from that responsibility somehow. And again, it's not pointing a finger of blame or shame. but just uh, bringing awareness to what are we doing? We don't ask ourselves very often, what do I really need right now to be happy, to feel complete, sufficient? And we've been conditioned to feel like we're in a state of lack so much of the time, isn't it? And that's what the whole world of advertising rests on that. (laughs) You don't have what you need to be happy, but there it is and it's shiny and beautiful.
But if we take the time to look, we might see that we maybe don't need so much and that there's a, there's a blessing to be found in simplicity. And this brings us to looking at, at this quality of contentment. That's one of the things in that chant. It says contented and easily satisfied. I mean, this quality of contentment is so elusive, isn't it? This contentment, interesting to look at what that is, what it might feel like. I was lucky enough to be able to uh, do a long period of retreat this past winter. And part of the time I I spent uh, two months at a retreat place in California. And I joined a retreat like this, but it was a longer one. So I was just a yogi. Nothing special here. And it rained almost every day for the first month. And I had m- some real back problems, spasms, and kind of constant pain. And my mind was not behaving the way I wanted it to <laughs> a lot of the time. And yet, I was more contented than maybe I've ever been in my life. This deep contentment. What's up with that? Is it just that I'm weird? (laughs) I mean, it reminded me of other times. Like, I've, I've touched into this quality of contentment at times when it seems sort of unlikely to have arisen. Like, I'll tell you one story when I was on retreat in um, in India, in Bodh Gaya, which is the, the temple area and the town that's uh, where by, uh, by the place where the Buddha is said to have been enlightened there in, in a very poor part of India. And I, I was on retreat at, um, at the Thai temple there. Each, of the, uh, each country that ha- has a Buddhist tradition, they built these um, viharas. Uh, a vihara is a, a resting place for pilgrims. And so there's a Thai one and a Japanese one and a Tibetan, more than one Tibetan one in Sri Lankan and so forth, Burmese. And I was uh, on doing a three-week retreat at the Thai vihara there. And at that time, um, many of us, the, the men specifically, were um, staying underneath the main temple building in the, in the, well, it wasn't a cellar, it was a kind of a a crawl space <laughs> but it was you know it was like maybe 5 feet high so you could you could walk like this <laughs> under there bent over you couldn't stand up straight and we had these pallets made of straw and we had mosquito nets and we were just lined up you know there was a little space between between us and there were um a lot of us down there 75 or 80 probably and um only one way out, so it would not have um, passed um, fire code. <laughs> and um, because it was a long way to the, the other parts of the compound, and especially to the toilets, um, we had two um, five-gallon buckets uh, to urinate in at night uh, for those who had that need. And then it was someone's job to empty those buckets each morning. And it somehow it fell to me <laughs> much of the time. And I remember walking along with my 10 gallons of urine <laughs> in the morning, having spent the night in this place, and feeling 
this deep happiness and contentment. Like I remember thinking, if this is my life for the rest of my life, I'm fine with that. Now again, this may be pointing to um, some deep psychological problems. I, I will, you know, admit the possibility that that's what this is about here. But, um, but it was striking, you know, it's like, this is fine. I'm happy. I don't need it to be different than this. I don't need something to change here. You know, we live in this discontented kind of culture in a way. There's so much we don't have that we obviously clearly need to be happy. So conditioned to look for contentment outside of ourselves and in things in the world, experiences or things we might get. And so this quality of contentment is seen in this way as something that we might be able to, to get it or reach it, attain it. Maybe if we get the thing that we're thinking about in the moment, We see contentment as dependent on conditions. And we we cede a lot of personal power in this way. We make our okayness, our contentment, dependent on things outside of ourselves, circumstances. And and we have to work hard to rearrange and, and get things to be a certain way. And, you know, I'll be content when I earn enough money or when I get the right job or I meet the right person or whatever it might be, some kind of goal. And and it's always around the corner. And then maybe we get it, but it doesn't last very long. We got to get it again because some different way. It's like this quality one teacher um, calls it if only mind. If only I had, if only I could get, then I'd be content, then I'd be happy. But the teachings of the Buddha are pointing to a, a really different radically different way of approaching life and looking at things. Suggesting that we might find contentment internally and through a transformation of the way we look at things. That it might come through a kind of deep acceptance of the way things are right now in this moment, an intimacy with our inner world right now. Not so much dependent on outside conditions. So something we can find inside. We might find it right here on this retreat that it's just through this, uh, this living carefully that I was speaking about. Maybe we would find that that brought us kind of deep contentment. The joy and the beauty of that. Maybe we would f- could find a quality of contentment within this uh, awareness itself resting there. And then it doesn't matter so much what's happening. Our contentment, our okayness, our peace of mind is not dependent so much on external conditions. And it doesn't mean we have to leave the world and that we can't enjoy worldly pleasures and and the things that we can have that bring us happiness in that way. It's not about that. We, we experience those things, we enjoy them, and we can let them go when they 
will go because that's the nature of things. And our, our contentment, our ease, our peace of mind isn't dependent on having them or getting the next one, at least not so much that way. And we might find that there is a quality of contentment that's possible when we might least expect to find it. So then what I think of as the second or middle section of this teaching of the sutta is, um, I, I see it as an actual meditation. It's the part that really feels like, um, like a meditation, even through just uh, reciting the words. And the word, this is called the karaniya metta sutta, and this word karaniya means uh, something that one does, that is to be done. And I see the, the, the giving voice and doing the chant actually as a, as a meditation practice, as a loving-kindness practice. So I'll, I'll chant that next part. Again, the invitation to join me. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. This part of the the teaching, the sutta, um, in a way I think it points to the fact that uh, we can uh, touch into and, and uh, develop and cultivate this quality of mind you know, at any time in any kind of circumstances and direct this quality to uh, all different kinds of beings, really to anything. It points to the fact that, that the object that we're directing it to is maybe uh, not so much, uh, not so important as the quality the quality of mind or or heart that might be there. It's the way we regard the object, like we look through a a certain kind of lens, the lens of kindness. And and yes, we have this sincere wish for another's well-being and happiness, but the kind of purification, it's internal, it's in our own mind and heart. There's a, one of the, the commentary texts describes um, the proximate cause and the thing that gives rise to loving kindness is described as being uh, uh, seeing lovableness in beings in the world. And its footing, the basis that it rests on, is said to be seeing with kindness. So seeing lovableness, seeing with kindness, this idea of looking through the lens of kindness. And you know, we're all kind of a mixed package and there's things we might like about ourselves and others and things we don't. And a lot of the time we focus, maybe especially with ourselves, on the things we don't like. We don't find measuring up. We find ourselves seeing with unkindness more often than with kindness, at least some of the time. 
we feed this quality of resistance and aversion and fear, judging, self-judgment, separation in that way. And so when we do this practice, when we open in this way, we're, we're not pretending that there isn't room for improvement, <laughs> but we're focusing and looking in a certain way on purpose, intentionally. We're intentionally looking through kind eyes, not pretending that we're perfect, that others are perfect, but we're choosing at this time to place our attention in a different way, focusing on the good, on what's lovable. And this can really change the way we live in the world. We can, through this, create a field of goodwill, consciously create that. It can become a place, a haven for others in this way. Might be interesting to consider practicing metta in kind of non-traditional ways and times. Maybe to what we used often think of as uh, inanimate objects. Andy Olensky suggested uh, practicing metta for things like clouds. May these clouds be happy and peaceful. Now, maybe we're tired of the rain and we're not feeling so benevolent towards the clouds. <laughs> I don't know. But we, we can cultivate this state of friendliness in all kinds of ways, different times. It doesn't have to be when we're bringing someone we care about to mind or in the presence of someone that we love. You know, maybe we could direct metta to um, difficult thoughts or mind states or to painful feelings in the body. I consider that. To the different uh, contexts at the senses. Michelle often guides uh, um, loving kindness in that way. That which is arising in the moment, may it be happy, may it be well. And this section that I just chanted that we just touched into speaks um, to this inclusive and unconditional potential of metta. Whatever beings, there's no exceptions, they're all in there visible, invisible ones, all sizes and shapes. We get the medium-sized ones. You all seem kind of medium-sized. And short and small and huge, bulky in some translations, wide. Even ones who haven't been born yet. So there's this sense of uh, inclusion, this pure benevolence this simple generosity just wishes well to all kinds, to oneself, and it's not asking for something in return. And it can become really, really, uh, truly unconditional, really thoroughly inclusive. It doesn't demand that others be a certain way. The criteria for being worthy of love is being a living being. We're all pre-qualified. We're all worthy of metta, worthy of love. We don't have to prove ourselves. The Buddha once in one, one teaching, he said, one could search all realms in all parts of the universe and never find another being more worthy of love than each of us is ourselves. We should keep that in mind. 
We don't usually hold ourselves in that way. Hmm. Not going to get through even this first part. Hmm. Well, let's chant, we'll chant the next section and then maybe I'll continue in my next talk. Now, this next part uh, maybe is less of a direct practice and more a reflection on uh, qualities of mind and uh, heart that one cultivates and that are important when we um, explore loving kindness. Well, let's do this chanting. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. Hmm. So I think we'll, I'll end with a sublime abiding. Uh, for tonight, and uh, yeah, I'll come back to this next time or at some point. So, um, yeah, let's just sit quietly for a moment or two, and then I'll ring the bell.
Thank you for your kind attention this evening, and we 